Uh, thanks so much, Adam, and thank you for the welcome this morning. Lovely to be with you. Uh, definitely the first time that um, I've ever heard a men's fellowship meeting announced with added uh, money needed for ammunition. Uh, and that's, uh, that might be a very interesting connection into our topic uh, this morning as well. Um, certainly one way of solving these issues. Um, but uh, uh, we're going to turn in our Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 10. And you will see actually in the passage there is a bit of a, a segue into, the, into uh, what we're going to think about uh, this morning. Uh, so Matthew chapter 10, and we'll begin reading from verse 34. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and just this brief uh, section from verse 34 to 39. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Join with me in a word of prayer as we come to God's Word this morning. Father, we have been singing together wonderful words of how you sent your Son to take our place, to be forsaken, to die and to rise again so that we might be accepted and forgiven and have life forevermore. And Lord, these wonderful things that we have been singing, we, Lord, we want to know what difference they make in our lives. What difference do they make to our, our, our generational relationships? What difference do they make to our families? Lord, lead us in our thinking. May your Spirit be our teacher and helper now as we come to your Word for the sake of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Now, already these weeks, we been, have been uh, having a very helpful introduction uh, to the topic of generations or families. Uh, in week one, uh, David Farrell helpfully grounded us in uh, Genesis 1 and 2, and that call to leave and cleave and be united to husband uh, and wife uh, leading to a family unit which becomes fruitful and multiplies and fills the earth with those who bear God's image, filling the earth, if you like, with the presence of God. And that was a, we saw that as a, as a purpose of that family unit, that, that, that basic unit as he drew out for us of parents, mother, father, and then children, that sort of upside down triangle, if you like, which was very, very helpful. And then last week, uh, Pete Snow helped us to, to think a bit more about that triangle and how those sides of the triangle relate 
in a sense, filling in those two directions there between parents and children, between the generations. The, the honoring of child to parent, and then the training or, or nurturing of parent to child. The honoring of, of younger to older, the training of older to younger. A wonderful image then that we've had set up for us over these past couple of weeks, and yet it can all go horribly wrong, can't it? There are at least a couple of dangers. One is the family is everything danger. That danger, as we saw in the title of overvaluing family. And let's develop last week's thoughts just a little further. You see, honoring parents, honoring those who are older is a good thing. But that honor can easily tip over into fear, a fear, if you like, of displeasing parents that can become paralyzing to us. I've spoken to so many people over the years who have felt trapped in that kind of relationship, parents holding sway, if you like, over their children right into adulthood, manipulating perhaps using emotions or money or even care of grandchildren, and, and leaving adult children who fear and eventually grow to resent those parents, leading to all kinds of relational trouble. That family is everything. It can become a problem, but it can also become a problem not just in that honoring parents kind of direction. It can also become a problem in the, the, the nurturing of children, that direction of the triangle. Because the raising and the training of your children can also slip into overvaluing them as well. We invest everything into the perfect childhood. Life becomes dominated by this commitment to prosper our children, which becomes a, a, a controlling kind of attitude. Good desires, good intentions, but they become overgrown desires, and they go bad. And we want to think a little bit this morning about why those things happen. So that's the, the, the family is everything end of the spectrum, and we see how that can become a problem. But then there's the other end of the spectrum, the undervaluing of family, where the the family is nothing, the family is nothing set of problems, where we perhaps begin to neglect the honor of parents. We, we fail to visit, we fail to care for, we fail to acknowledge and to give thanks to them for all that they have done. The family is nothing along that particular relationship, or we can fall into that that the angle where the, the, the training or the nurturing of children becomes nothing, if you like. Now, of course, we wouldn't actually say that. But life can so easily become about involvement in other things. Work or, or church begins to dominate. And we tell ourselves that, that our children are going to be to, to, to learn and be blessed by the good example of our service and our working, but nurture 
gets replaced by neglect as we get absorbed in other responsibilities. Again, it's, it's often, these can be often good responsibilities that we want to be involved in, but that sense of over-responsibility away from our families begins to crowd out our love for those that are nearest to us. Now, let me try and, and flesh this all out and, and illustrate it a little bit more uh, with, with real life. Let's take Jenny and Johnny. Now, as I often say at, at moments like this, any resemblance to anybody in the congregation is entirely coincidental. Uh, this is not, these are not real people. And yet at the same time, I hope that we all feel that these people illustrate our lives in a sense that there is a resemblance uh, for all of us. So Jenny and Johnny, uh, they're in their early 40s. They have teenage children and life is busy. They are anxious about the children. Joanna is 15. She dresses in dark boyish clothing. Uh, she's cut her hair short and to a skin fade on one side, and she wants to be called Joe. She stopped coming to church. She doesn't talk much within the family uh, and instead communicates much more to an online group of friends that she has found. Jenny, her mum, has recently just noticed what she thinks may be superficial cut marks on Joanna's arms, uh, but hasn't been able yet to share her concerns about this with Johnny. Jordan, their 13-year-old son, is generally quiet and compliant. Uh, Johnny's parents, that's Jordan's grandparents, are, are missionaries far away, and they are pressing for him to come out on a team this summer so that he can learn about service. Jenny feels he's too young, but Johnny feels a strong pull from his parents for this to happen. Jenny finally gets to speak to Johnny. I hope you're following all the J's here. Jenny finally gets to speak to Johnny as he's about to go out to a deacon's meeting. We need to talk about the kids, Johnny. What about when I get back, replies Johnny as he's hunting for the car keys through coats that are hanging up. What about now, says Jenny under her breath, exasperated as Johnny heads out the door. When he gets back, Jenny tells him that she phoned her mum to talk things over about Joanna. But your mum's not a Christian, says Johnny. How can she help us? Well, you're never here, she says. And so it goes on. We'll revisit uh, Johnny and Jenny and the family later. But generations, it can all go a bit wrong, can't it? Like that. And what does this passage in Matthew have to say to us this morning? Well, we read in the, in, in the passage before us that into situations like this, Jesus sends a sword. That's the first thing. Jesus sends a sword. Now, let me quickly set the scene of this passage that we read from Matthew this morning. The Gospel of Matthew is all about Jesus coming as the Messiah, the King. 
And by this stage, Jesus has begun his ministry by announcing his coming reign. The kingdom of God is near, he announces. And we then see him in the earlier chapters of Matthew beginning to bring God's kingdom into the lives of those that he is near. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount, those values of this new kingdom. As he heals and as he calls people to follow him, he is bringing the kingdom of God near. And by chapter 10 here, he is now sending out the apostles on a mission, a mission into the world to proclaim the kingdom. And in the passage that we read together, this is Jesus commissioning the apostles to bring the message of the kingdom out into the world. And he says these words, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, you might be thinking, but hold on a second, is he not the prince of peace? Uh, Do we not read in Isaiah of the increase of his government and of his peace? There will be no end. Why all this talk about a sword? And we need to see in this passage the bigger picture of the conflict, the sword that Jesus is referring to. Cast your eye back down the passage. You'll see that in verse 1 of Matthew 10, as I said, Jesus is sending out his disciples and he's giving them authority over evil. They are to cast out unclean spirits They're to heal every disease and every affliction. They're getting authority over evil. The kingdom is coming near. They're to go out and to proclaim, verse 7, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they demonstrate it further in verse 8, in overcoming evil, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Evil is being overcome. The evil kingdom, if you like, is being pushed back by the kingdom of heaven. In verses 11 to 14 in this commission then, we see that there are already signs of this conflict appearing. There are some towns that are not going to receive these apostles. By verses 16 and 17, Jesus is now warning them. He tells them that they are going to face wolves and they are going to be persecuted. And by verse 22, he warns that the impact of this coming kingdom on closest family relationships is such that children will rise up against parents. So you see the theme there, don't you? I have come to send a sword. I come bringing a sword. Matthew is drawing our attention here to the bigger conflict, the bigger stage of kingdoms at war, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of evil. And it's on this stage of kingdoms at war, of good versus evil, of light versus darkness, it's on that stage that the lives of families and generations and relationships are playing out. So when Jesus then, in verse 35, warns his disciples, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
He's just stating the reality that there are greater allegiances at play because this is a battle between bigger kingdoms. And before peace, there must be a sword. Now, what is Jesus doing with this sword? Because at first glance, if you just take those verses, 35 and 36 at face value, it looks as if Jesus is just coming along with his sword and he's disrupting relationships. Man set against father, daughter against mother, and so forth. He's spoiling relationships. He's spoiling that, that honoring and training between the generations. That's what it looks like. But of course, you and I know differently. We know that it's not Jesus' sword that disrupts relationships. Jesus is coming on this mission because he knows that what really disrupts families and generations is sin. And he brings his sword to effect the defeat of sin. That's what we've been singing about this morning. That's what the sword is for. Generational relationships will never truly flourish until sin is defeated. That unit that we've been thinking about these past few weeks will never be blessed unless sin is defeated and true love begins to characterize those relationships. And that can only happen in a right relationship with Jesus. When the king is properly on the throne in our lives, that's when sin will be defeated and that's the real battle to be won. And that's what will bless our relationships. Now, what does this actually then look like? Jesus has come to bring this sword. What does this sword actually look like? Well, this sword, secondly, is a call to love Jesus above earthly relationships and above ourselves. This sword is a call to love Jesus above all our earthly relationships and above ourselves. Verse 37 Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, notice the way that Jesus speaks then about all of this. It's in terms of what's worthy of him, what is worthy of this it was lovely arriving this morning. I arrived just at the end of the breaking of bread, and you were singing, He is worthy, you are worthy to receive glory and honor. It was, it was wonderful to hear that, and it made me just think about the, 
the connection with our passage this morning. That's what's most important, the worth of this king, his glory, his honor, what's worthy of him. That's what's most important. And of course, it makes sense. He's the king. He's announcing his kingdom, and he's the king of that kingdom. He's the originator of all of these relationships. He's the firstborn of all creation. Of course, we have to be worthy of Him. We have to live worthy of Him. We, our relationships have got to be worthy of Him. His worth must come first. And you see, as we saw at the beginning, relationships go all wrong when we place too much worth on them or on other things and begin to neglect them. It's what's worthy of God that's key. Now, what does that look like in our earthly relationships? Well, it looks like in verse 37 that we love Jesus more. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, we need to kind of flip that round to understand what he's saying and realize that what he's saying is that to be worthy of me you've got to love me more than father or mother. We've got to love Jesus. We've got to love the King more than our earthly relationships. That's what he's saying. We must love Him more. The word he uses for, for love there, beautiful word. It's that word of, of personal relationship, that word of personal attachment, personal affection. It's an affectionate from the heart kind of love, the kind of love, of course, that we see within families. It's a familial word, really. And again, notice it, it's, it's a more than love. We've got to love Jesus more than those other relationships. It's not either or. It's not love Jesus and don't love others. Don't love the generations. Don't love parents and children. It's love Jesus more than, with the idea that as we love Him more than, then our love for others falls into its proper place. We love Him first, and love for family gets put right. And there's more to it uh, as, we, as we read um, in verse 38. You see, loving this king, it's, it means not just loving him more than other relationships. It also means that the, that the biggest competitor for that love, i.e. ourselves, loving ourselves, needs to be put to death. That's what he's saying in verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus' crucifixion had not yet happened, of course, at this point. He's just sending his apostles out on their mission. But of course, to their ears, the image of the cross as an instrument of execution, uh, it was a common thing in Roman Palestine. 
And so again, what Jesus is saying here is that to become a subject worthy of this king, it meant not only dying, in a sense, to those best and closest relationships so that we put Jesus before them, it means dying to self. It means putting my pride, my self-interest, my own selfish wants and needs on a cross and have them suffocate and die and perish on that cross. Take up your cross and follow me. And instead then of living for self, we begin a walk of learning and following and trusting Jesus and of nearness to him. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, pause for a second with me. Let's see again, what is Jesus doing here? We've been thinking these last few weeks about that triangle, these relationships. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking that upside down triangle that we've been thinking about, and he shows us where it's going wrong, how those relationships are going wrong, and he puts it right, and he puts it right, watch, by putting another triangle on top a triangle which places him at the pinnacle, which places him at the top, a triangle whose sides now point all to Jesus as we love him more than anything else and than anyone else. And when we do that, when that relationship of love and honor toward him is right, then all of the leaving and cleaving and weaving and training and honoring that's happening down here amongst the generations, that all begins to fall into place and to get put right. Because this relationship is in its right place as a priority. And so let's look finally and thirdly then at what this all looks like. Let's come back to Jenny and Johnny and Joe and Jordan and I wonder where the parents are beginning with Jay as well. Who knows? Let's come back to that. What does this look like? How does this help in our relationships? How does it help us in those relationships of honoring and nurturing? How does, it, how does it deliver us from those extremes of family is everything and family is nothing, those dangers that we talked about at the beginning? Well, Johnny has gone on to the deacon's meeting. And Jenny, in her exasperation, she decides wonderfully to take a bit of time with the Lord. She comes to the cross and she seeks the freedom of being forgiven for her anger at Johnny. You see what she's doing? She, she's beginning to turn to the king. 
She pours her heart out to him. Lord Jesus, Joe's heart, it's in your hands. I feel really worried about her. Is she drifting away from you? Lord, you love her more than I do. Help me to draw near to her and to understand her. Lord, give me a chance also to talk with Johnny. And Lord, help me to do that in a way that is worthy of you, that, that is going to trust you, whatever his response is going to be. Now, do you see in that moment how for, for Jenny, that, that loving Jesus, even more than her family in those moments, how that turning to him begins to realign her relationships and her response in the situation. Well, Johnny comes home. The conversation with Johnny happens. It isn't easy. And he's defensive initially, saying that it's good for the kids to, to see commitment to church, he feels. But later in the week, while he's driving to yet another meeting, and thinking over what Jenny said, he begins to, to sense a, a conviction about those passages in the New Testament that, that speak of those in ministry who, who have to manage their own household well before they're set apart for serving God's church. And in that moment, what's happening with Johnny as he's, as he's driving his car? Well, the, the, the king of this kingdom is speaking words of life right into Johnny's heart in that moment. And Johnny is hearing the king speak, and he's finding himself praying as he drives. He finds himself convicted of wrong priorities. There's the Holy Spirit at work. He finds himself confessing his sin and grateful that Christ died for it. There's the gospel meeting him. And part of this is Johnny beginning also then as he drives along to to see his hardened heart toward his daughter, Joanna. He wonders if his, if his busyness is actually just trying to, to run away from that situation. Now, what's going on there for Johnny? Johnny is, do you see what's happening? Johnny is taking up his cross. He's putting self to death. And he begins to realize that following Christ might mean fewer meetings, a different heart toward his daughter, and time given to trying to pursue her in the struggle that she's facing. What about Joe? Joe recognizes that her parents aren't happy with her not being at church. Joe became a Christian at a young age, but in the last year or two, she struggled with her feelings of identity and fears that her church and her parents won't accept her. And although her online community offer a lot of acceptance, somewhere underneath all of this struggle, she wants to follow Jesus. Now, Johnny and Jenny try to draw near to Joe. They've prayed together to the king. 
They've confessed together their fears for Joe. They've even asked forgiveness for judgments against her. They've sought wisdom from God as they approach this conversation. And as they try to speak with her, initially Joe is resistant and suspicious. Doesn't make the conversation easy. And it's a process. But Johnny and Jenny are determined to meet her with grace to allow her to speak the things that trouble her and the way she feels about her identity. And they are determined to love her well, entrusting her to the King, to the Lord, who saves and who keeps. And how do Johnny and Jenny follow the King and love Him most? in their own parental relationships. Johnny has also, in the midst of all of this, begun to see how a fear of displeasing his missionary parents was dominating his approach to the whole situation with Jordan. He had lost sight of things. He'd lost perspective. He wasn't loving or nurturing Jordan well in that, nor was he really honoring his parents at the end of the day. And now he wants to think about nurturing Jordan and training him up in the way that he should go, in the way that Jordan should go, not in the way that Johnny's parents think he should go. And it leads to an honest, humble conversation with his mom and dad about Jordan maybe doing this team at another point. And of course, Jenny and Johnny also want to love Jenny's mother well, too. She's not a Christian, remember, and, 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 and it, it seems as if, as if the sword of Christ that we've been thinking about, in a sense, divides them. And we could nearly take this passage in Matthew to mean that following Jesus means that they treat Jenny's mother like an enemy. But loving Jesus remember, more than her, leads instead to them seeing the good in her, appreciating the image of God in her. Yes, they're in different kingdoms. They're ruled by a different mindset, and Johnny and Jenny will therefore be careful because Jenny's mother's secular views could influence the children, but the Jesus, Jenny and Johnny, are following and loving, is a king who has come to seek and to see of the lost. Jesus loves and is pursuing Jenny's mother. And as his followers, Jenny and Johnny want to love her and reach her with the good news of his kingdom as well. They want to bless her. Now, none of this is perfect. None of it is perfect. Not yet. But one day it will be. And until then, this putting self to death, putting Christ first, 
this growing love and wisdom in relationships, this confession of sin, this seeking to know more of Christ right in the midst of their lives and trusting and following Him first in these relationships, well, it all feels alive. It all feels right and good. And it feels like life. It feels like life as it was meant to be. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, relating this way with Jesus as Lord, with Him as King in our lives, it involves self-denial. Johnny saying no to those desires of being over-involved and over-committed. Jenny saying no to resentment and anger, both needing all that Christ has done for them in all of these struggles and relationships, both of them loving Christ more than parents and children. It feels like losing your life, but really finding it. And that's what families and generations are all about. Love Christ, lose your life, and so find it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you came. You came, you brought a sword, a sword that would defeat evil, a sword that would defeat the selfishness and the darkness and the evil in our hearts that threatens every relationship we find ourselves in. And you defeated that evil by placing yourself under a sword. You put yourself under a sword for us so that within our hearts and within our lives and our relationships and within our families and within our generations so that sin could be put to death and love could flourish. We thank you for all our King that you've done for us. May we know the great joy of living out the love of your kingdom in all our relationships, our families, our generations, for your great honor and glory. Amen.